Please stand for the reading of God's word. This is Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The word of the Lord. We prayed for our youth, one of our youth right there. Let's give her a hand again. That was Maya. Had a game night this week, and Maya does quite the Peyton Manning in our little fishbowl game. You should get her to show that to you. Uh, really fun time we had together as a youth. We're going to continue in our series this morning, Summer in the Psalms, Rest for Our Souls. And we're going to be in Psalm 42, uh, a psalm that's very sweet uh, to me and probably to many of you. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we will dive in. Father, we thank you for your word and how you speak to us through it, how you reveal yourself here. Lord, I ask that you would be present today as we know that you are and that you would speak to our hearts, that whatever might be distracting us, that you would remove that and that we might be ready to receive from you. Lord, I pray for myself and for each person here, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I want to begin this morning with a quote uh, that I think sets the backdrop for Psalm 42. I want you to ponder these words with me. Spiritual darkness is a vast interior landscape of loneliness and abandonment. Solitude is our only companion in a dark night. Even in the midst of our loved ones and friends, we persist in feeling desperately alone. Darkness invokes extreme contrast between our immense feelings of solitude and deep desire to belong to something greater than ourselves. The suffering that results overwhelmingly defines our presence in the world it is this pervasive sense of abandonment and loneliness in the midst of a crowd that is for me the essence of the dark night of the soul. 
I'm gonna read that last part again. It is this pervasive sense of abandonment and loneliness in the midst of a crowd that is for me the essence of the dark night of the soul. Uh, Brian Auger is here reflecting on what St. John of the Cross long ago famously termed the dark night of the soul. Uh, And for some of you in this room, you know this dark night all too well. Uh, It is your present reality. It most accurately describes your current condition. Uh, Your inward state is so dark and so dreary right now that at times you can't even recall what the light looks like. There's very little hope or joy in your life at all. And I know that in a room this size, there's some of you here today that feel this way, and I'm so glad that you're here. For others, although that quote may not represent a present reality for you, you've certainly tasted that darkness before. Uh, You've certainly experienced it in your life. And then for a select few of you, by some stroke stroke of luck, if you have yet to taste it, you need to get ready because it's coming. Because unfortunately, none of us skate through this life untouched by the darkness. I'm I'm honestly even touched by the darkness that Todd just shared. Um, Just a reminder that uh, the darkness is so around, all around us. It's It's an inevitable part of life in this broken world to experience some really dark nights, amen? But thankfully, our God is not ignorant of the darkness that so often consumes us. The book of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus himself experienced the darkest of dark nights. And I believe it's because of God's ability to relate to our suffering that he refuses to simply offer us an instruction manual on how to make the darkness go away. You see, because if you've you've experienced this kind of darkness before, you know how offensive it can be for someone to offer you a quick fix. Just do these three things and everything will be fine. Take this pill, read this book, have some more faith. Fortunately, unfortunately, I've been both the recipient and the giver of those such comments, but not our God. You see, he knows our hearts and he knows our suffering far better than that. Instead of giving us three easy steps, he in turn gives us a prayer. A prayer penned by a man who himself is covered up in darkness. What I love about this prayer, Psalm 42, is that it's crazy. It's so crazy, it's all over the place. I mean, you see, oftentimes in the Psalms we see this very linear progression from doubt to faith, from fear to confidence, from hopelessness to an incredible resolve and trust in God, but not here. Here the psalmist keeps going back and forth from doubt to faith and back to doubt again. Verse one, he starts off and he's lonely and afraid. And then in verse three, he seems to find some hope and faith, but then in a split second in verse five, he's gone again. That's the cadence of Psalm 42. I don't know about you guys, but that really resonates with me. The crazy narrative, not the linear one. That's more like my heart. Listen to how Eugene Peterson describes this dynamic of the Psalms. He says, in the lives we actually live and in which the Psalms teach us to pray, experiences of lament are not organized in the first week of each month, 
followed by the second week of experiences of thanksgiving. Experience arrives randomly. Jack grief and Jill pain tumble over one another down the same hillside. Doubt and faith are in a wrestling match. First one on top and then the other, shifting in supremacies. We cannot order our lives into discrete categories. Life comes in Hopkins adjectives, dapple, fickle, freckled. Real life does not move neatly from doubt to faith and come to this nice crisp resolution. No, real life is constantly moving in and out of darkness. It's lived by crazy people like you and me who are just barely holding on to an ounce of faith, enough to get through another day. So for those of you who resonate with the craziness, this psalm is for you, it's for me. Before we get too deep into the text, I want to offer a brief but critical clarifying comment. Even the saints of old, although they didn't have the same modern categories and definitions, they recognize that there are both spiritual and psychological components at play when one encounters the dark night of the soul. And let me be the first to caution you against thinking that you can survive the dark night of the soul solely through spiritual disciplines. For some of you, this may be true, but for others, the psychological and the spiritual are so interconnected and they must both be engaged. And I'm a strong believer in therapy and medication, and therefore I would encourage those of you in this place to avail you of both of those good gifts. However, that being said, I am a pastor and I'm not a therapist. And so my job this morning is to focus on the spiritual and maybe dabble in the psychological. And I hope that many of you might have the privilege to spend some time with someone who might be equipped to focus on the psychological and maybe dabble in the spiritual. If you need some help finding someone like that, please let me know. I'd love to connect you with someone like that. But as we begin to unpack our text this morning, I want to go back to the quote that we started with. Alger says, Darkness invokes extreme contrast between our immense feeling of solitude and deep desire to belong to something greater than ourselves. What Alger is saying there is that the dark night of the soul inevitably reveals something. Our feeling of solitude reveals our deep desire to belong to something, to attach ourselves to something greater than ourselves. Or as the author of Psalm 42 says, it reveals our thirstiness. Because you see, when life is good and everything's peachy, we are completely unaware of our thirst, right? When everything's going well, we become convinced we don't need anything. But when the darkness comes, it's in those times that we are most aware of our thirst for something greater than ourselves. It's because we can all relate to the dark night that we can all relate to this thirst that we read about here in Psalm 42. I think it's interesting that our culture today uses the word thirsty as an insult. As defined by Urban Dictionary as someone who is too eager to get something someone who's desperate. But here in Psalm 42, thirsty is not an insult, but rather the norm. The psalmist knows no greater reality than his own thirstiness. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants. It's raw, it's carnal, it's almost barbarian. He's gotta have it. What is he thirsty for? What is it that will satisfy this deep longing that 
he can't get out from under a longing for something greater than himself? What will quench his thirst? Now, if we allow the culture to speak to this one, the answer becomes a little blurry, right? If we begin to listen to the voices around us, because the world is promoting a whole host of things that it claims will quench your thirst. If we turn on the TV, you will be persuaded by a multitude of thirst-quenching solutions. Sex, money, cars, fame, the right president, the right credit card, the right toilet paper, all these things our society says will make the thirst go away. But what does the psalmist say? Verse one, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My, th- my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come, and this is the literal transra- translation, and appear before his face? The psalmist believes that the one thing that will quench his thirst is the face of God. It's an important idea here, brothers and sisters. When the Bible references the face of God, which it does over and over and over again, it is referring to God's presence his nearness. It's the experience of being with the living God face to face. This is what the psalmist is thirsty for above all else. Brothers and sisters, isn't this the heart of the meta-narrative of the whole Bible? The grand story that we see from beginning to end. You, You remember the story, right? Genesis 1, mankind was before God's face in the garden. Adam and Eve experienced the glory of God's presence. And then the fall happened. Adam and Eve were banished from the garden and God withdrew his face because he cannot be in the presence of sin. And the whole rest of the Bible is mankind's journey to recover the face of God, right? To find a way back into God's presence. And yet it's God, not man, who finds a way, right? And we see this in Christ. John 1.14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The face of God was with man once again. But as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians, because of sin, even in Christ, God's presence was veiled. Verse 12 in chapter 13 says, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. But there's hope there, brothers and sisters, because Paul promises that what we are so desperately longing for is coming. Verse 12 continues, but then, but then we shall see face to face. To which we reply like the psalmist in our text this morning, when, when shall I come before your face, God? And it's not till Revelation 21 that we're given the answer to that question. The end of the story. Verse three says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Then, then face to face, then we will be with God again. And that, brothers and sisters, is the tragedy of Psalm 42, right? And really the tragedy of the whole Bible. In the darkness of this world, we are thirsty for God's face And yet the reality looms over us that this thirst will not fully be quenched until Christ comes back. That is a tragedy. That is a difficult reality to swallow. So now what? How do we survive until Christ returns? 
The answer, I think, is here in Psalm 42. We listen to the prayers of a thirsty man. And brothers and sisters, please hear me here. This prayer is not a magic bullet or a quick fix. It's not like the TV ads say, guaranteed to make the thirst go away. No, but instead, this prayer serves to point us to some oases in the desert, places where we can find temporary relief from that deep longing for God's face. It's in the midst of the psalmist's crazy journey of doubt and faith that there are these glimmers of hope, this little bit of nourishment. And so I wanna highlight two of those this morning, two places where the psalmist finds relief from the dark night. The first is the gathering of God's people and the second is the promise of the future glory. The gathering of God's people and the promise of future glory. Let's begin with the gathering of God's people. So this first oasis that the psalmist comes to where he finds relief is this gathering. Look again at our text, verse three. This seems to be the lowest point for the psalmist, rock bottom. His tears are his food day and night. The only thing that seems to quench his thirstiness is sorrow itself. And his sorrow stands as a stark evidence of God's abandonment of him. And yet in verse four, he somehow finds this oasis, a drip of water on his parched tongue. Listen to the text. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Now the context is critical here for us to understand what's going on. We see in the heading that this psalm is written by one of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah are temple musicians. They're worship leaders like Candace and Marvin. And yet what we see in verse 5 is that this particular worship leader has been taken into exile. Uh, now exile in and of itself would have been dreadful being taken away from your homeland. But for a worship leader, this was a big problem. Exile meant that you no longer had a vocation. You were useless to society. So this worship leader is off in exile with nothing to do and the darkness settles in. And yet here in this memory, in verse four, this worship leader finds a bit of comfort, a memory of one of the great Jewish festivals. I wanna try to paint a picture of what this was like for you. Now you can remember this was an agrarian society, so the people were spread out all over the land because you needed land and lots of it, so it pushed you out all over the nation of Israel. But three times a year, as a Jew, you would leave your home, all of your livelihood, and you would journey to Jerusalem. You would journey to the city for a great festival. And if you can imagine what this was like, as everyone began to journey in, they'd be coming from all over, coming to the same place. And so as you're coming in, you would bump into other people who live nearby. And what the text says is that they would kind of gather into these throngs and they would parade together into the city. And as they kept going closer and closer, just the excitement would build. And they would begin to shout and sing and they were praising God, all eager to get to Jerusalem for this party. 
How cool would it have been to be one of the few permanent residents in Jerusalem and to witness this happening and to look out and see this coming? You would have heard it first, probably. Everyone singing and shouting and making all this ruckus, and all of a sudden you would have seen everywhere around you all these people march again like ants that finally begin to take form. And they're coming in, and it's getting louder and louder, and then they all arrive at this one place for this massive celebration. Wouldn't it be cool? I'm not kidding. I was thinking about this this week. I really want us to do this someday, but wouldn't it be cool if, for those of us whom it was feasible, we committed to pilgrimage to church one Sunday? I think this, this is how it was playing out in my head. I'm just imagining my wife and I we're coming down the porch, and here come the Gleasons and the Blakes. They've come down Roxborough, and they cut across the canal, and we bump into them, and hey, oh, we're going to the same place. Let's, let's go together. And we walk down, and we come to Elizabeth, and here come the Coles with the baby jogger, and they meet up with us, and we turn towards Hayti. And as we're coming down Elizabeth, here come the Masons. They're walking down, and, and they join in, and we're kind of all getting excited. We're all going to the same place, and we get down to Holloway and the Dwans and Miss Beverly and Michael jump in. And then we come down a little further and the East Durham crowd begins to roll up Main Street. And we see them coming and we hear them and we join up with them and we come up to 147 and we can look down the hill and, and then here comes West Durham, Watts Hill and Dale and Old West and they're, they're marching up the hill and way off in the distance there's the South Durham people coming up from Forest Hills and, and marching up. And everybody's coming and it's getting exciting and, and louder and we all converge here at Hayti. And we meet and we gather and, and we begin this celebration. How awesome would that be? Why would we do that though? Why, what would be the point? Why would we go to all that trouble? Look back at the text. Why do you think this memory, this memory of the march, was so sweet to the psalmist? What did this memory serve to do? How did it make the darkness go away just for a little bit? What stands out to me here is that there seems to be an expectancy that exists amongst the throng. They, 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 there's this excitement brewing that is the expectation of something great, right? We get excited when we're expecting wonderful results, something glorious. Brothers and sisters, why do you come here on Sunday? I know why I come. I get paid. I work here. <laughs> That's why I come. But why do you come? Do you come here because on some level you feel like you're supposed to? Like it's your Christian duty? Do you come here because your mom does or your spouse does or your roommate does? Do you come here because you got nothing better to do? You know why these people in Psalm 42 showed up? They showed up because they were thirsty for the face of God. Brothers and sisters, what we do on Sunday morning is the closest thing we've got on earth to the face of God. The gathering of God's people, the preaching of his word, the singing of his songs, the crying out in prayer, the partaking of the sacrament, this is God's good gifts to thirsty souls. The author of Psalm 42 would have given anything to be sitting right here with us right now. Anything. 
Oh, how we take it for granted. Oh, how I take it for granted. And, and it's not that Christ Central is so great. Don't hear me saying that. It's that the gathering of God's people on his day in his house is so great. And I realize some of you are thinking, man, church is doing nothing for me these days. What is he talking about? And I wonder, I wonder if that apathy exists because we're not preparing our hearts well. We're not cultivating that expectancy that we see here in verse three. Verse three. Maybe we should march in every Sunday so that our hearts would be ready. There are countless Orthodox Jewish congregations that are committed to this. They march to service every week. I'm not saying that would fix everything, but the principle is so important. We have to cultivate an expectancy of seeing the face of God here on Sunday mornings. Do you come here believing that you're going to see him? Only then will this place be a cool drink to your thirsty souls. Leads us to the second oasis that we see that the psalmist runs to for a little relief in the darkness. It's the oasis of future glory. I have to confess, as a parent, I have mastered the fine art of bribery. Uh, I can get my kids to do almost anything as long as there's a treat coming on the other side. Going to the doctor to get a shot, there's ice cream after you do it. Going on a long, long car ride, the beach awaits when we arrive. You get the idea. Because we as humans can endure a lot when we know that something wonderful is awaiting on the other side of our suffering, right? It's the awareness of that future glory that gives the psalmist a little bit of relief in the darkness. But what is the future glory? What is he putting his hope in? Look again at verse five. This is the refrain refrain that's repeated twice in this psalm and then in the next. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. Again, the literal translation, for the help of his face. The psalmist finds relief from the dark night in the assurance that one day he will see God's face again. I love how the psalmist here in verse five, is he's working to drive this assurance deep into his soul. He is talking back to his soul. He's not letting his soul win out. He is telling his soul what's up. He's slapping his soul around with this beautiful truth that God one day will be with us again. Don't be cast down, soul. I promise the relief is coming are his words. And yet, brothers and sisters, unlike most of us, the psalmist has no assurance that he will ever make it back to the house of God. He doesn't know that. We know that next Sunday, most likely, we'll be here. But he has no assurance there. So how in the world can he be confident that one day he will see God's face again? The answer is the psalmist here is putting his hope not in next Sunday, but in the final Sunday. That moment when all God's people will gather from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and worship will never cease. And it's on that Sunday the psalmist knows that the face of God will be revealed and all the darkness will be driven away. Listen to Revelation 21 a little further down than what we just read. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. It's Jesus. 
And by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. Brothers and sisters, on that final day, King Jesus promises to drown out all of the darkness in our lives with his beautiful, brilliant light. So for those of you who are struggling, who have struggled for days, months, maybe even years with darkness, you can put your hope. There is guarantee that Christ is coming back and that darkness will fade. That is true. There's no one who understood this reality better than Dr. Martin Luther King. In his final speech, just before he was assassinated, he spoke these words. And then I got into Memphis and some began to say the threats or talks about the threats that were out. What would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers? Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will, and he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. Wow. Dr. King was able to walk straight into the face of darkness because he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that the light of the promised land was coming. Brothers and sisters, as we prepare to leave this morning and head back into a world that is so gifted at cultivating darkness in our souls, I charge you to remember what it is that will truly satisfy your thirst. It's only the face of God. And would you be committed to come here each Sunday expecting to see his face? Would you expect to meet him here? And at the same time, would you find great strength in the hope that that glorious final Sunday is coming where darkness lingers no more? I want to conclude with the words of a famous hymn, and I hope and pray that this might be nourishment for your thirsty soul this morning. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. I am bound for the promised land. Oh, who will come and go with me? I am bound for the promised land. Oh, the transporting rapturous scene that rises to my sight, sweet fields arrayed in living green and rivers of delight. Where all those wide extended plains shines one eternal day, there God and Son forever reigns and scatters night away. No chilling winds or poisonous breath can reach that healthful shore. Sickness and sorrow, pain and death are felt and feared no more. When I shall reach that happy place, I'll be forever blessed, for I shall see my Father's face and in his bosom rest. Let's pray. Father, I I don't want to make light of anyone, anyone's suffering that's here in this place. And Lord, I hope and pray that what was said did not come off as trivial or a quick fix. 
but that we might be encouraged in the midst of such great darkness to find relief from your, from your face, from being with you. God, I pray that this would be a place where your presence is richly felt, that when we come here, we taste and see that you are good, and that that gives us enough nourishment to make it. God, I pray that for myself and for each person that's here this morning. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.